Welcome back to The Latecomers. I'm Amity. I'm Lemuel. And we have just watched Season 2, Episode 1 of Twin Peaks. And it was a doozy. It was thrilling. Um, Everything I like in television. Before we get into the show, how was your week? It was actually pretty good. I enjoyed myself. It was such a long silence before you I, mean, I had to think. <laughs> I did. I finally caught up on some things I wanted to do for a long time. Woo! I feel like this week was non-existent. Yeah. And we are back again. Uh, we're both sitting in the dining room again with blankets on because it is still California cold. And now it is California pouring rain. Uh, our hearts and minds are with those where on the east coast where it is negative degrees that's mm. i can't even imagine that it sounds like science fiction to me I've we never... would freeze to death because there's no heat in this house we'd just be sickles right. a lemuel sickle and an amity sickle mine is frozen to our microphones would be horrible so th- let's get into the episode this episode aired on september 30th 1990 mm-hmm. it was a sunday night and it was a two-hour episode it was an Hour 33 for us on Netflix, but a two-hour movie-length episode. And it aired four months after the season one finale. So pretty quick turnaround. And I I was looking up some other things, notable things, from September of 1990. Uh, The number one song in the United States was Can't Live Without Your Love and Affection by Nelson. Those blonde-haired twins. I'm surprised it's not Maisie Dotes. No, it's not. That might be next week. Mersey Dotes. Mares. Mersey Dotes. Mersey Dotes. Dozy Dotes. A little Lamsey Divey. And uh, Four Past Midnight by Stephen King was released that month. I'm very old. In the theaters was some things I've never seen. Miller's Crossing and Goodfellas. Oh, God. <laughs> I've never seen either of those things. This explains a lot about Twin Peaks and that moment in our culture. Just what was going on? Both movies are very violent. Um, it's the Coen brothers, right? Cohen. Well, it says Miller's Joe Crossing. Cohen, so I don't know if it okay. was both of them, but I thought it was. And violent. Yeah, and then what was the other film again? Goodfellas? Good, yeah, well. One of those gangster films I never did see. Never seen the Godfather films, never seen Goodfellas. What else fits in that category? I don't, well, there's a lot of them. Anything the, with Ray Liotta. Right. You never saw The Cotton Club, you never saw... Nope. Oh, okay. <laughs> this episode, this two-hour Lynchian extravaganza, mm-hmm. directed by the man himself, David Lynch, which was noticeable immediately... There was no hiding the lynchiness. We've gotten into the lynch I don't like. This episode was rough for me. So this is officially the episode that's lost you. There, they, yeah, it's okay. not. I don't like it. The episode was directed by David Lynch, written by Mark Frost. And mm. would you please do us the honor <clears throat> of reading us the way too brief synopsis i'm sure as cooper lies bleeding from a serious gunshot when he has a vision of a mysterious giant who helps him with his investigation albert rosenfeld arrives in twin peaks the next morning to assist cooper and to investigate his attack 
Meanwhile, Leland Palmer's hair has suddenly turned white, and he continues to act in an unusual way. This is an understatement. James remains in jail after being framed by Bobby, who plants Leo's stash of cocaine in James' motorcycle. Big Ed maintains a close watch on Nadine, who after a suicide attempt is left in a comatose state. Leo also remains in a coma after having been shot by Frank Hank. The sawmill burns down, leaving Catherine and Josie missing, and Shelley and Pete in the hospital after barely escaping the fire. Donna, after receiving some advice from the log lady, looks into the meals on wheels that Laura worked at. So, yes, all of those things happen. And more. And also, they don't touch on the fact that Audrey's having a hell of a time. Mm. She wasn't even <clears throat> mentioned in that synopsis. Not at all. But she is in the episode. I think she's unfairly discriminated against. Well, I think everyone in this episode was unfairly discriminated against. Ooh, except Alicia Vitt, who's adorable. She's adorable. Um, so Except when she's possessed by the devil. Well, she wasn't here. That was on the exercise. Which is interesting watching it because now I think the very first time I saw her, she was evil. And the last time I saw her, she was evil. So well, <laughs> my memories the of last her. last time for now, she has not passed away. Right, she hasn't. She'll um, be back doing appearances on That's Incredible Reunions. Unlikely. <laughs> that there would be a reunion, not that she would be there. Okay, so we're full into the weird now. Mm-hmm. We... David Lynch enter, opened his door to his Lynchian universe and has pulled us through by our eyeballs, whether we wanted to go or not. We're here. And it's, it's horrible. I hate it so much. <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. Well, the opening scene seemed to give you a warning about what you were going to see. Yes. It was like, hey, you know how we were doing this murder mystery? We're sort of done with that now. We're sort of just going to get bonkers. Buckle up. Get ready. Uh, Cooper, we, we open on Cooper. He's on his back in the middle of his room. I don't know how he got there, but that's fine. It is clear that he was wearing a vest because there are three bullets, holes in his shirt. Only one of the places is bleeding. So he has been shot. And is bleeding, uh, but not three times, only once. Enter a tall, mustached gentleman, bald gentleman, with some warm milk. You think, oh good, he's going to get help. No, he's not, because this man, this man, he asks if he's doing okay. He gives him a thumbs up several times. He hangs up the phone, which is off the hook, with Andy yelling, Are you okay? Are you okay? And he comes back three times to reiterate the thumbs up and the all good. Now, you said you knew this person. I know this person, and that's why I, I enjoyed this moment. This is, this is Jack Warden, who is a character actor from Westerns way back when. And what's remarkable is that he seems to be playing the same character he played in The Searchers. Mm-hmm. For John Ford, in 1956, he played Mose Harper, who was um, kind of, uh, who becomes one of the heroes of the story, but who's a, a doddering lunatic who winds up um, rescuing uh, Natalie Wood's character from the Indians. 
Uh, and he even uses his uh, the line that Lois Harper uh, did in the uh, film. Uh, thank you very much. Thank you kindly. Thank you kindly. Yeah. Right. And uh, at this, he was a he was a character actor. He was an actual cowboy. Believe it or not, he was an engineer. He seems very tall to be an very actual tall. cowboy. He fell and broke his neck. Oh no! Which ended his cowboying career, and he yeah, didn't know think. it for twenty years. He just had severe pain, and eventually, years later, he got into another accident on set. He did an X-ray and found out his neck had been broken twenty years ago when he oh, fell. Oh, good the grief! But he made appearances in The Lone Ranger. He was in the westerns as I was growing mm-hmm. up. So seeing him here, playing the same character, kind of doddering and and not quite right in the head. He comes back into the room, I think, three times. Three times. He leaves and comes back three times. He gives he the thumbs has, up. To... He he gives the thumbs mm-hmm. up. He has him sign for the milk. Right. He says, "Drink it. It's gonna get cold." Uh, Cooper tries to utter, call the doctor or something along those lines, and the guy just goes, oh, I hung it up for you. Right. Hung it up? I hung it up. And, um, yeah, I do feel like this is David Lynch just telling, like, the casual audience, this is not for you. You may see your way out. The door is over there. And I was like, I want to go to the door. (laughs) (laughs) That particular... Like I said, he, he did a lot of westerns, but Mose Harper is famous for John Ford, when he directed that film, called him a Shakespearean idiot. He mm-hmm. wanted to have that character. And that's what makes it funny watching him doing the same character again. Yeah. I, Possibly if, the same person. If, I don't know. If you're on board for Lynch, and if you have that, that mm-hmm. frame of knowledge, right. I, you Ford. were laughing. I was laughing Ford. hysterically. And I was, was like... Dear sweet Jesus, let me just be done with the scene. Right. It's so long. It, the other thing is the scene is very long. Because he's not just slow mentally. He is physically a slow moving. He's an old, and he moves very slowly. Yeah, well, th- yeah. he's terribly, terribly old by this point. I, I um, Well, that was your first utterance. Yeah, it's, There's no way that could be him. He's got to be dead by right. now. Nope. This man can't die, apparently, <laughs> Mr. 20 Years with a Broken Neck. Um, but, yeah, it was. I, I found that part to be terribly funny just because, again, it, it brought up memories for me. And right. it, I had a frame of reference for it, like you said. If you didn't, then that, probably, that scene probably was unbearable because it just there was no break in it. No. Well, and then once that's done, uh-huh. it's sort of, we sort of have a weird fade-out, and then a giant appears. Mm-hmm. A young giant, right? Not an old giant, and this person appears to actually be a giant with what's it called? Acromegalia. Yes. So actual giantism, and he is. He tells Cooper three things. They're riddles, of course they are. Um, the first is that there is a man in a smiling bag. The second is the owls are not what they seem. The third is, without chemicals, he points. Um, And then he's like, everything I tell you is true, and once you know that they're true, I'll come back. Or then you'll believe me. And he says, give me your ring. I'll bring it back when you trust me or believe in me. Um... Oh, and then he says one more thing, which is, 
Leo locked inside Hungry Horse. And then he says, you will require medical attention, which I'm pretty sure Cooper actually already which knew. is the least mystical and most obvious of the Right, but also, it's good that somebody said it because he's bleeding out on this floor. It's not a good scene. Um, and then we leave Cooper bleeding just by, we'll, we'll catch you later. And we go back to One-Eyed Jack's, ugh, where Audrey is avoiding her gropey, gropey dad. So she starts by, like, clutching the... Um, the bed curtains the canopy. on the, the four-poster. Yeah, on the post. Uh, yeah. And saying, no, you, you can't see me. And no, you should go away. And um, fortunately, Jerry starts coming looking for Ben. So he's going to be scooped up out of there. But before that, she, he says, okay, I'll leave. And then he sneaks to the door, opens the door, and closes the door on staying in the room. Now, she has to know that this has happened because... He's smoking a cigar, and also she's not stupid. I mean, she's done a stupid thing and gotten herself into some trouble, but she's not. She's stupid. reckless, and in this episode, comes across almost endearingly naive. Yeah, because the, we later the scene see her later literally is very sweet with her, praying to Agent Cooper yeah. to help her. Um, and then she um, sort of scrambles to the other end of the bed, and there are. Like uh, like Venetian masks hanging on the wall, and she grabs one that's of a cat and puts it over her face, and manages to avoid Ben until Jerry comes and says, "We've hit a S N A G." I don't know why he needed to I didn't spell know that. that spell. Um, I was really grateful for subtitles. He's like S N A G. So weird. Um, and then so Ben leaves, and then we go back to Cooper, still bleeding, still on the floor, still by himself. Well, by himself again. No longer in the presence of either a giant or a Western legend. And he starts talking to Diane. Now, he does not have his voice recorder. He says, hopefully, I inadvertently clicked the voice activation button. Okay. So, of course, he did, because we then see the recorder recording. But wouldn't you just always have the voice activation button just clicked? It just saves you a button push every single time you use the thing. Oh, unless you don't want to record literally everything that's said. I, I find this this episode to be a good argument for religious education. Why? He's dying and he's talking he to a is. tape recorder. That's the She's thing. She's praying to an FBI agent. Yeah. It's like obviously somebody needed... You know what though? This, is, this works. Well, we don't know if it works for her. Right. It works for him though. So he is... He's, he goes on about the things that he wishes that he'd done in his life including... Making love to a, a beautiful woman for whom he feels affection, or something like that. Right. And I'm like, are you saying you've never done that, or you want to do it again? Are you a virgin? He could Oop. quite possibly be, and that would explain his superpowers. It, well, maybe. He's very focused. And, and then, of course, he wants to go to Tibet, and he hopes the Dalai Lama gets to go home. Very, very worldly of him. And... Finally, the door opens. Or the door's been open. Right. The door's been open the whole time. Mm-hmm. This, I would give a really poor Yelp review to this hotel. Truman and the other cops arrive. Hawk and, and Andy, I think. I think Hawk and Andy. I think. It's I love their enough. kind of, you know, and very action much movie a, entrance. It's the Charlie's Angels 
like pose that they all get into into in the uh, in the doorway, and then we the next thing we see is Cooper waking up in a hospital bed, and I want to get this right because because this is actually my favorite piece. Mm-hmm. So Cooper wakes up in bed and. Truman goes, Lucy, fill him in. And Lucy says, the mill burned. Pete and Shelley are in the hospital for smoke inhalation. Dr. Jacoby was attacked and had a heart attack. Leo Johnson was shot. Catherine Martell and Josie Packard are both missing. Nadine is in a coma and Jack Renault was strangled. And he just goes, how long was I out? <laughs> and they're like, it's 745 in the morning. <laughs> like, not very long, like three hours or something like that. Um, yeah, it's the most honest reaction. Yes, in, it uh, was. It was purely exactly what he would have said, and uh, I think what anybody, anybody would have said. said. Um, and uh, the doctor is there, and he says, "We haven't been this busy since the Elks Lodge fire of '59." Then Cooper gets up. Mm. And, like, AMA decides he's going to, like, continue to be a cop and work. And I'm just like, dude, you got shot, like, three hours ago. You could sleep. Well, he makes a statement about the will. To bend disciplines. To bed. The Dalai Lama has a friend in David Lynch. Well, the idea is it is far-fetched that he'd be up and around, but also you can't really bench him for the remainder of the season because every day is a Well, the explanation you haven't given for why he... Has it's less severe than it could have been. Yes, um, he could have actually avoided all of the shots. It sounds like, but he had rolled up the bottom of his bulletproof vest because there was a wood tick. He felt a wood tick on him, and then it turns out that the bullet mushed a wood tick on um, him. Or is that what? <laughs> probably the most ridiculous shot of the episode. Mm, uh, the doctor available. shows a bullet with a wood tick stuck on it. Stuck on it. It yeah. obviously hit the wood tick and and killed it. <laughs> Somehow burying the dead wood tick and the bullet uh, inside of his intestines. I don't know. I still don't understand how it worked. So then we go to the Palmer house. And Sarah, who is Laura's mom, and Maddie are having coffee. Maddie uh, tells her aunt that she had a weird dream of the rug in the living room. Um, and then Leland walks in, cheerful as all get out, with completely white hair. His hair has turned white in the act of murder, apparently. And then he sings Marezy Notes, the song that we referenced earlier, which I don't enjoy. And it's a very popular song. Yes. And then um, Cooper, as they're leaving the hospital, he sees a body bag that Jacques Renault was in, positioned in a way that it, the zipper is, like, open, and so it looks like it's smiling. So the person in a smiling bag has come to pass, the right. giant's first uh, revelation? Is that the word I want to use? That's the word to use. It seems to be some sort of... Um manifestation because he appears and disappears in the room. She also does later. Right. Is... Um, and then Ben and Jerry Horn are in Ben's office trying to determine if Catherine really died in the fire. Um, they're kind of good if she did or not because they're going to pin the 
arson on her. Mm-hmm. I cannot. Okay, so let's go over this. Mm-hmm. Pete went in by himself right. and has smoke inhalation. Shelly was removed by right. Catherine. She and Catherine, I have to assume, have the same status. Well, yes, but Catherine's absent. Absent. Because so, Catherine uh-huh. knows that there are people who are trying to kill her, actively and trying to kill unlike her. Unlike Shelley, who would use this as an excuse to wash her hair in an abandoned house in the woods, uh-huh. uh, this yeah. woman is smart enough to actually decide it's time to leave town and someone's out to kill you. I'm going to go. Right. Um, and Josie's also missing, but mm-hmm. we hear a little about where she might be right. later. Um, but I have to believe, I believe that we don't see Catherine in this entire episode, but I believe that she is still alive or Josie. Mm -hmm. They also are asking, Hank is there in the office with them and they are trying to get a reason why Leo is just in a coma and not dead. Hank seems to legitimately believe that Leo was chopping wood in his house. Even dumb Jerry Horn is like chopping wood in his house. And he keeps going, yeah, you know Leo. Hank keeps doing that. And I'm just like, no, no, no. Listen to Jerry. This motherfucker, this dumb, gross motherfucker has a point. Nobody chops wood inside their house. That's fine. And Hank is like, and the neighborhood was crawling with cops. I already had to sneak past them. I'm like, neighborhood? Leo and Shelly live in literally the middle of nowhere. I need to stop saying literally. Leo and Shelly live on the edge of a wood, on the edge of a meadow, at the edge of one road that comes from town and goes to nowhere. I mean, there's no there's no neighborhood. It was just like what are you talking about? Oh, and then Leland walks into the office still singing. Right. And this is he's gone uh, from crying and dancing to singing. Better? Worse? I like this scene. It's really bizarre. Um he's singing still singing Mersey Dotes and to this tune the two brothers one gets up and dances on his desk and the other appears to attempt to break dance to this Is song. that what he was doing? Yeah, well, I don't think you can break dance to a 40s uh, a forty silly symphony song, no. Um, but yeah, they they attempt to do it. It was very weird. Um, and then at Leo's house, there uh, Cooper and Truman are investigating the crime scene, and they realize that Leo was shot from outside, and that he was trying to kill someone with an axe when the bullet came from outside the window. Uh, Truman thinks it was Shelley, but Coop isn't so sure. Then Deputy Andy starts. Well, he actually has real evidence for that, uh, and something because he mentions that Shelley is really small and physically couldn't have fallen and moved this television. Move the set. television, right? Well, and also, Shelley has smoke inhalation. Right. She was at the mill. Right. So the, the timing wouldn't have worked. So the that. timing wouldn't have worked. Yeah. Um, and then Deputy Andy, oh God, starts like yelling about Agent. Rosenflower, which is not accurate. So Albert Rosenfeld, Miguel Ferrer, asshole extraordinaire, uh, shows up 
and Andy steps on a board and it hits him in the face. You know, like when you step on a rake right. and it whips up and hits you in the face. Now, yeah. This scene, like the first scene in the episode, goes on way too long. Way too long. I mean, there's just a lot of footage of Andy kind of... Behind a board. Behind a board, staggering to keep himself upright and not fall down. And looking like a complete idiot. He probably would have looked less idiotic if he'd just fallen just down. Just fallen down. Just fall down. But instead, he's conked himself on the head of this plank, and it just goes on and on and on. And being that this is uh, the agent's return visit to Twin Peaks, where he thinks everyone's kind of a rube, this does nothing no. to and change And Albert him says, and another, another great moment in <laughs> right. law enforcement history. Albert, he's... Uh, Cooper is trying to keep, through this episode, is trying to be like, look, if you don't want two more black guys, you need right. to again stop being such a dick. Be a dick in your head. You don't need to be a dick out loud. Right. Um, my, he does have a really good scene later where he's he trying not to laugh, scenes. and right. it is There are moments where I really identify with him in this episode, where the behavior of the locals is so bizarre, and their stories are so strange that he, coming from the outside, feels like, one of us. He can't accept how weird it's getting either. Yeah. So so then we go to the diner and uh, Maddie and Donna are meeting. And Donna, they, they, they didn't make her look the same as she looked right. before. She's, her hair is longer, uh, like noticeably longer. Uh, she's smoking a cigarette. Where did this habit come from? Um... They're, they know that James is in jail, but they don't know why. And so they mm. vow to keep quiet about the night in question. And then Maddie gives Donna a pair of Laura's sunglasses. And Donna puts them on and becomes possessed by Laura or yes. something. This She's is a very possession-oriented episode. not like herself at all. I thought she smoked after this, but she was already smoking. So she's already made mm. some significant... Character changes in the last four hours since we saw her last or something like that. And then Maddie says she hates her own glasses and she destroys them and says she's never wearing them again. I hope her prescription isn't super strong or she's going to have some serious issues. If I did that, I'd be fucked. I wouldn't be able to leave the house. Yep, I wouldn't be able to leave the house. <laughs> I like how you give that some consideration. Well, I'm trying to think. I, I could probably do everything I need to do in the house. Mm -hmm. I couldn't cook. Right. But I could, like, get from room to room. That's about as good as it's going to get. If I had to drive, it would be right out. Um, so hopefully those big glasses were skinny, maybe for reading only. I don't know. Norma comes by and leaves a note for Donna that someone said to the double R that simply says, look into the Meals on Wheels. Then we go back to, I guess the police station, but it might be the hospital where Albert is like mm -hmm. examining Cooper. And he is basically like, look, your boss sent me here because uh, an FBI agent has to investigate when an FBI agent right. gets shot. And then he like just... Because he is a forensic genius. It's like the shooter was right-handed and between 5'6 and 5'10 and was standing three feet away. And uh, then Andy comes in telling Coop that he has an answer to the puzzle that Coop gave him. 
Leo locked inside Hungry Horse. Leo Johnson was in jail in Hungry Horse, Montana, which is maybe my favorite town name of all time, on February 8th of the previous year, which is the night that Teresa Banks was murdered. So Leo now has an alibi. He was their main suspect. suspect but he's not a part of the serial killing that... That they both are a part yeah. of, this Teresa Banks and Laura Palmer. And... Then James is in the interrogation room talking to Truman. He plays him the tape that Laura made for Jacoby that he had brought previously and they then was sort of strong-armed out of, out of talking about. And then uh, James says, you know, I, f- I had thought it was Leo, but now after listening to the tape and hearing her talk about fire... Unfortunately, he doesn't spell fire. He just says fire, even though Laura spells it out for us. He says um, that she recited a scary poem to him where she said to James, do you want to play with fire, little boy? Do you want to play with Bob? And then Cooper walks in and says, what do you know about this necklace? And... He says, give me the necklace, and James gives him the necklace. And then Truman kind of is like, how did you know he had the necklace? Um, And then uh, he said that he got it from a coconut in Jacoby's office, or in Jacoby's house. And Cooper is like, a coconut? (laughs) And At this point, he also makes the observation that this was breaking and entering. Right. So their whole little plot becomes exposed. Right. Well, and he says, I knocked and nobody answered, which is because the door was open, he right. says, and I knocked and nobody It's important answered. to notice also, that, or to um, note that he didn't give away the, the girls at all. No, he did not. And this whole plot. It was all made. him. Which but, is probably smart because it would lead to Dr. Jacoby, it could lead them directly to being suspects. Right. In Dr. Jacoby's attempted murder. Right. That was well, probably that's what, what it felt like, yeah. Yeah, because the person did not stop after hitting him once. Mm-hmm. He went on. This wasn't an attempt to discourage him from following what he thought was Laura Palmer. Right. This was an attempt to actually put him in the ground. So right. To speak. Although, the other thing was, I don't think they were intending to start or to instigate a heart attack. Right. I don't know that they would know that that was going to happen. And then we have the Donna and James scene, and it is weird. So Donna comes in all Sultry. I love these people smoking in public places. The hospitals, the police station. And James is like looking at her like, what is that? What are you? you this is weird. What are you doing? <laughs> like, you can, like, on his face, he's like, I don't like this. This is not Donna. Well, this is his old girlfriend possessing his new Maybe. Girlfriend. And. He says, when did you start smoking? And she says, I smoke sometimes. To It eases the tension. And, she, and then he says, well, when did you get so tense? And she says, when I started smoking. And I was like, oh, that's some mammoth writing right there. Right. Like, that is some David Mamet-style writing. And then she kind of just is like, get out soon. I miss you. And he's like, mm, I don't like this. <laughs> I think he's safer where he is. I'm uncomfortable. Um, and then <laughs> elsewhere in a conference room, Cooper brings two boxes of Flesh World magazines the last three years of stock in and asks Lucy and Andy to go through it looking for pictures of Teresa Banks, the uh, prior murder uh, victim. And... 
uh, Andy <laughs> goes, I just want you to know that I feel uncomfortable doing this with you. And Lucy's like, why? We're both professionals. And then she opens <laughs> one of the magazines and she goes, oh. <laughs> I'm just like, that's why. He's uncomfortable because of that. Because that is a lot of porn between two people who may have a bun in the oven between them and won't talk about it. <laughs> like... Then we go back, and Cooper and Truman are talking to Jacoby. Um, Cooper is not in it for games or hocus pocus. He's like, "Cut to the chase. Why do you have? The, why did you have this necklace?" And he said, well, "I followed a man in a red Corvette, and then, but I lost him. But then I followed a bike with James and Dom, Donna into the woods and watched them bury Laura's necklace. And we see this. We see the necklace go into the ground." On a chain, it's a cha- it's a chain it's a gold chain, with a gold pendant. And when it comes out of the ground, it's on a brown cord, and pendant. Where does the chain go? It's magic. The fact that at this point you're expressing it. reservations. Yes. It wasn't well, the the because it's giant like, or the it's their MacGuffin, right? Like mm-hmm. this thing is supposed to mean something. Right. So it is weird that it goes in as one thing and comes out as a different thing. And then they ask, well, we know you were here when Jacques Renault got strangled. And he's like, well, I didn't do it. There's something you wanted to point out. He didn't get strangled. No. They keep saying he was strangled or um, what's the other word that they use? Um, Suffocated? No. They don't use the word suffocated. Because he was smothered. He was smothered. You right. could say suffocated. He was suffocated. What he was not was strangled. That requires force around the neck. This was pillow face. Pillow mm-hmm. face is different than force around the neck. Pillow face sounds like a really bad Dick Tracy villain. <laughs> bad Dick Tracy? Along with flat top and prune face. I think same as, I think those are all good Dick Tracy villains. There could be others. I keep thinking muffin top should be one. <laughs> <laughs> Muffin top, pigeon toe, flat top, prune face. Good grief. All right. So. Oh, Jacoby also tells Cooper that he believes that Laura wanted to die. Not that she committed suicide, but that she put herself in a position to be murdered. Which sounds pretty plausible, frankly. Um, well, she was a thrill seeker and very reckless, so yeah, I can totally see that happening. And she, and he says that um, though he was heavily sedated, he remembers a strange smell like scorched engine oil. Which might be the food served in the hospital. Might be. It looks like a tray of five different baby foods. Much is made of the fact that it smells terrible. Right. Including, I think you hear staff talking about the food. And Pete, right? He's retching yeah, after he, he eats it. Well, he and doesn't even eat it. He smells it. He possibly... Yeah, he's he turned out to be the worst for his experience because he seems to be... He and Agent Cooper seem to be feeling the... Um, they seem to be in the most pain. Right. Yeah. Well, the other ones aren't out of the hospital yet, so they're no. maybe getting some meds. Um, then Bobby Briggs shows up to make out with Shelly... You really thought they were going to totally do it in her hospital bed, but they didn't. They got real handsy. Well, she. this is the first decision she's made that makes any sense at all. What, to not? Not having <laughs> sex with her. I, I love the fact that you can make out with a woman who has a breathing tube on. You can. I've never tried it. 
probably more easily because they don't have to breathe through their mouth because they're getting oxygen put into their nose. Hmm. I'm just saying. Oh, wow. More easily. Not that... Anyways, whatever. Um, and then, oh, we go down, and this is the scene where Albert laughs. We go down, and we finally get Big Ed and Nadine's story. Big Ed and Nadine have been married since just after high school. Um, Ed and Norma had been together for four years. Then Norma had gone off with Hank for a weekend. And Ed lost his damn mind. And um, didn't really know Nadine, but to say hello to her, he says. I mean, so everybody knows everybody a mm-hmm. little. Um, but when in his grief, she was there, and so they drive, they drive, drive, drive for like two days um, into Montana, I think he said. And uh, drunk, joking, delirious. He asked her to marry him, and she says yes. And then they get married, just as the peace style. Then they go back to Twin Peaks, and he finds out that she didn't even have sex with Hank. But now he's married. This is, he doesn't seem like an impulsive man to me. No, he and was I think that broken. <laughs> just the, his one impulsive moment ruined the rest of his life. Which and is then sad. they go out of town on um on a honeymoon mm-hmm. where he really believes that they're going to talk annulment or divorce like it was dumb of them to get married um but she seems really happy and then he ends up shooting her eye out like literally <laughs> shooting they were shooting a pheasants. It was a Dick Cheney meets Christmas story moment. It really was. She and actually shoots her eye buck, out. Buckshot clipped a rock and the rock clipped her eye and she never blamed him and never got mad, nothing. She doesn't need to blame him. He feels guilty enough. He's That's still married right. to her. And so they are married forever now <laughs> because he, in... In accidentally shot her in the face. And so as he's <clears throat> telling the story to Truman, uh-huh. was he telling it to Cooper or Truman? He was he telling, telling it to it Cooper. Cooper because um, and um, Truman had taken Albert sort of aside, aside, not very far, basically right. across the hallway, <laughs> right. to get some coffee. And Albert is cracking up, laughing at this story. Like he's he's quiet. And he pulls out a, a handkerchief, and he's trying to, like, keep it together. But he is laughing hysterically at this story. Like, this might be the best thing he's ever heard in his yeah. whole life. Um, that shows you how decent this man is. He marries the woman because he shot her in the face, which well, is... Well, no. He shot her in the face be- after he married no, her. No, I know that, but he stays married with stays her. Stays married. Because he shot her, which is more than Dick Cheney did. I mean, I think he should have married the poor man he shot in the face. It's just my opinion. That should be a rule of thumb. If you shoot someone in the face accidentally, you have to stay devoted to them for the rest of their lives. Then we go back to the double R, and this is a weird scene. Um, Bobby walks in, and his dad is eating in a booth, eating Mm -hmm. some pie, huckleberry pie. And he asks Bobby to join him. Bobby is not super excited about it, but he's probably not going to get slapped in the face in public. And his dad... Tells him about a vision that he had of Bobby. Not a dream. It was a vision he had when he was asleep. 
the dream is just cataloging and sorting the day's events. This was about Bobby's future, um, which is bright and wonderful, where Bobby was living a life of deep harmony and joy. And it like legitimately looks like the major loves his son, and Bobby is like legitimately shocked. He's like, thank you for telling me this. Like, they have like a real moment. Yeah. It's real weird. You were like, his dad's going to die I now. think he's going to die. Obviously, he's had some premonitions <laughs> on I thought you meant, dad. like, right now. No, and he's settling up accounts or something, because he, the suggestion is that his dad does secret work for the government, whatever that means. Right. And so I think that, owing to the dangerous nature of his work, he's trying to make peace with his son before something terrible happens to him. Maybe. It is, it's very strange, because it's very unlike any other scene in this episode and any mm-hmm. other scene that those two have had before. Right. They're always fighting. There are They're moments like us. that throughout the uh, the series where two people have an honest conversation that seems to really move them forward as people. But the thing is, like... But this is very Because they're so different in tone mm-hmm. than either previous interactions between those characters or the entire rest of the show, right. it feels like a put-on. Right, it does. It feels beginning. like you're setting me up for something. And that was the best performing that I'd seen. The actor who plays Bobby. Bobby, yeah. Yeah, because normally was, he's... Usually he's overdoing it. Mm-hmm. It's uh, Maybe there was some Stella Adler between first and second seasons. He's actually pretty good in this episode. Right. Like, I, even when he's being gross, he's being gross in a believable way. Right. Not in an over-the-top he's way. He's a hormonal teenager. Yeah. Who doesn't oh, seem to understand... but the look on his face when he sees Hank, because... Um, apparently he didn't know who Hank was before. Right. He sees Hank and realizes that's who shot Leo. Well, Hank and doesn't he gets this look recognize face, him like, either. I no, guess he didn't see him clearly from outside. Hank still believes that he was chopping wood. <sighs> Hank does not know that there was a person in there because Hank is dumb. I think Hank is dumb. We'll be back at the station among the biggest collection of donuts ever assembled. I counted, and I'm pretty sure there were 66 donuts on that table. It that wouldn't surprise me. It seemed to stretch out columns, for a while. Right. And I think it was 11 rows, and then they were piled too deep. It was bananas. Cooper leaves out, or lays out the scene of the crime as they see it. On the night of her death, Laura receives a call from James, sneaks out with him on his bike. At 21 in Sparkwood, I always forget the name of the, the thing, but that's what it is. 21 and Sparkwood. She jumps off and runs into the night. She meets Leo, Jacques, and Ronette in the woods, where they proceed to go to Jacques' cabin. Waldo comes out of the cage, attacks Laura. Jacques passes out, and Leo leaves. Leo doesn't bring Laura and Ronette with him. He leaves them there. And a third man enters the cabin and kidnaps the girls. The third man takes them to the train car, ties the girls up for the second time. Well, ties Laura up for the second time. She had been tied up and had sex with the other two men. Ronette had not been tied up previously. Ronette escapes mostly because the killer is too intent on killing Laura to care. The blood on the note that reads, Fire Walk With Me, doesn't match Leo's blood, Jacques' blood, Ronette's blood, or Laura's blood. So it is the blood of the third man, presumably. Which... Ballsy to write a note in your own blood. It's 1990. It's forensics are probably not what they are now. And Andy is crying. 
I'm not exactly sure why Andy is crying. And well, he cried got... when he first saw Laura's body. That's so I true. think it's putting this connection together. Laura now, this is the most detective-like, police procedural-like scene in the entire series, I think, where they actually begin to put together this mm-hmm. whole field of bizarre clues together. Yeah. And I think that it might be some sort of sense of betrayal that Laura was not at all what he thought she was right. or what anybody thought. Right. Because here she is doing charitable programs. Yeah, and, and he does people. have one of the flesh worlds in front of him. And then he sees that she basically was not what anybody thought she was, mm-hmm. and she was self-destructive, and her actions do seem to be suicidal. Mm-hmm. And um, and he gets real say. Oh, uh, Andy goes, yeah, this is... Or, I'm sorry, not Andy. Um, Albert says, oh, yeah, Andy, this is what we call a real story-hanky crime. Mocking him for crying, and Andy's like... I hate that you talk smart, and you're a dick, and you should shut up. He doesn't say that he's a dick, but he does say to shut up. And then he storms off. And then Truman takes Pete home from the hospital, where having smoke, in, he says, having smoke inhalation is like having your lips taped to the tailpipe of a bus, which is exactly what it's like, actually. Truman asks about Josie, and he says, I don't know, but maybe this little note that I found here will tell us. And he opens up an envelope, and it says... Um, in broken English, I don't know if it's forced broken English or real broken English, that she's gone to Seattle for a business emergency and she'll mm-hmm. be back in a couple... She'll call when she gets there. And he says she goes down there like once every three months and mm. buys like half a department store. So he thinks that she's shopping. There's an interesting expression on Truman's face when Pete tells her, tells him that Josie has a secret vice. Oh, yeah, I think she goes down there for a secret vice, and he's like, what vice is that? <laughs> exactly. I'm like, Truman, be professional. It's okay. And you'd think that she would have told him that she was going to Seattle. I bet she had in the past. No, I think that... Um, He's beginning to get a sense of, but then again, we don't know why she's doing. We it. don't know. We don't know if she know even that wrote she this note. Is possibly responsible for the murder of her husband. Definitely. Um, well, she's paid for it. Right. So <laughs> she made I an mean, agreement. If she's not actually responsible. She's financially responsible for it. She is fiscally responsible for murder. And she has set up the million dollar insurance policy against Catherine. Right. She's the she's beneficiary on it. Right. So, Truman tells Pete that they saw and found Catherine's body and that he should maybe be realistic about his expectations. And Pete is, like, legitimately, like, that woman was hell to live with, but there was heaven in there, too. Like, Pete's the best. He's a pity... And there are some really good characters in here. They're very pitiable, though, because they made bad choices. That seems to be the theme to this show. People make bad choices and pay for it for the rest of their lives or pay for it with their lives. Yeah. And then... Um, the only person who seems capable of making good choices is somebody not from Twin Peaks. Agent Cooper chooses not to sleep with a teenager. He chooses to kind of walk by this um, this very kind of righteous path. I feel like Donna makes okay choices. She broke up with Mike, mm-hmm. who has not been seen since. Although his name was uttered in this episode, because James says, I think Bobby and Mike put the cocaine in my thing, but we haven't seen Mike in a long time. I'm trying to think, who else makes good choices? Make good choices. Log lady might. Mm. 
Oh no, she does a weird thing with gum in this episode. Oh. <laughs> that was a, that's already an indication. Weird. She's just like chewing up gum and spitting it, like into the, into the mustard, but like, at the mustard container. So, then it goes the mustard container like goes like this, and then she picks it up and sticks it up on the wall. What is happening? Hank Jennings is back at the Horns office waiting for the brothers, um, and saying that his call to Catherine put her in the drying shed when the fire started. So it's only a matter of time before they find her body. Oh yeah, we t- sort of already talked about this scene. I thought it was ne- later. So Catherine Martell and Leo Johnson burned down mill in insurance fraud is what they think that is going to be the outcome because that's what they've sort of paid for. Um, I don't think they got away with it in any way, shape, or form because even the television newscaster that you see uh, is suggesting that it happened under suspicious circumstances. Well, they, And certainly when Shelley is able to talk, she's going to say, I was tied up there by somebody. Right. Well, no, they want mm-hmm. everyone to know that Leo burned down the mill. Like, he, when he got paid, they mm-hmm. said, you need to make this shit look like arson. He wasn't subtle about it. And yeah, Shelley's certainly going to be like, Leo brought me there, tied me up, and then doused the place in gasoline and lit it up. Well, I mean, set a timer. Right. But I don't know why they didn't into... I mean, there's a lot of stuff going. There's right. a lot of pieces, but nobody interviewed Shelley. Not She's yet. She's still in the hospital. Not nobody that we've interviewed seen. her. At One-Eyed Jacks, Blackie is pissed off because Audrey... Didn't put out? Didn't. Well, the owner wasn't happy with the new girl, which... Well, right. which is unusual because uh, the owner got interrupted anyhow. Yes. So. But she wasn't playing along mm-hmm. until he got pulled away. Um, and he, she says, he wasn't my type. And Blackie's like, well, what is your type? And she goes, well, not you either. No offense. And I'm just like, bitch, you prostitute now. I'm pretty sure everybody <laughs> is your type. I'm pretty sure dollar bills are your type, and that's all you get to say. Like We can certainly say that of the other girl who worked at Perfume Counter, who just, are they rich? Are they wealthy well, men? But that's what... Mm-hmm. That's what people are doing there. working there. If she went through the effort of work, getting, you know... I, and yes, sex right. workers should have rights to say yay or nay and this, that, and the other. This girl signed up to work under this madam to do mm. whatever this madam told her to do. She has signed away her rights. That's why you should make this shit legal and regulate it. I'm just saying. Um, <laughs> that's a totally separate argument and, and conversation. But, but then Blackie basically says, hey, when you work for me, mm-hmm. every type is your type. Right. And then we go to dinner at, the Donna ho- at Donna's house where they've, they're hosting the Palmers and they've dubbed it the Hate. The Hayward Supper Club. Donna's younger sister, Harriet, reads the, a poem about Laura. We had seen her in the pilot episode right. writing a poem as well. So she's the poet. And then the third dollar, daughter, her name is Gersten. That's terrible. Um, who we have never seen or heard before. Who I was very excited to see is Alicia right. Vitt. At 15 years old. She plays the piano, um, which she does. She was a child, what do they say, child prodigy. Child prodigy. Um, and has made several albums in the last decade and toured as a And I, musician. just to interject, part of what startled me that this was her 
was I had no connection to the fact that she was the little red-headed girl who used to appear on That's Incredible. I don't even remember. I've seen That's uh-huh. Incredible, but I was she, very young, she and I don't remember one appearance that. where she was really tiny, and she was very excited about performing with John Davidson. And she has, has a huge crush on him, apparently, and she did a scene from Romeo and Juliet. Aww. And she just threw her heart into it. Yeah. Um, and then when they had the reunion show years later, years later for That's Incredible, she was a teenager, and she did a piano piece there. Mm-hmm. I did not know it was the same person, because other than that... But you know her from Dune. From Dune, where she was playing... Uh, and the first time I ever saw her uh, was on Sybil. Right. Which is... And I, I've always liked her as an actress. Right. It was funny today, though, having the experience of going, oh, wait, that was all the same person. Yeah. And uh, it reminded me of... Um, and then she wasn't in anything for a long time. Oh, she was in Two Weeks Notice with... Uh, Sandra Bullock and Hugh Grant, right. but she she sort of went musician for a long time, um, and then was just on this last season of The Exorcist, right? Which is very evil. Which very funny because yeah, that was the, the first performance I saw was playing Clive McLaughlin's sister in Dune, who was one of the great evil children of all time. I've she never seen Dune. Speaks so. in a man's voice. She you know kills people with her mind. <laughs> She's just a oh, great. Good. That's yeah, <laughs> she is. And the I think the last image of almost the last image of her in the film is um, like a burning city behind her, and she has a knife in her hand, and she's covered in blood. <laughs> she's she really runs away with her part of the film. Yeah. But uh, well, she's very good at, even in this one scene. Mm-hmm. She's like, I have good news. I got good mm-hmm. grades, just like my big sisters. So now I don't have to be ashamed. And I got the part of fairy princess in my play. This is my special dress, and I'm gonna play some music for you. Right. And she starts playing, which is fine. But then, then they're all eating. Like all everybody else decides that now we're going to have dinner, and she's still playing like she's been hired to play for them while they have dinner. Because and she's like, the redheaded child, and it's her job to entertain the normal like people. One of you, and then. Leland gets overcome again by song and sings, get happy. She plays and he sings the the get happy song. Which is funny because there's another reference maybe to Reefer Madness. Oh, I don't where know. Where he's singing faster and faster and she's playing mm-hmm. to catch up with him. Mm-hmm. And then he just gets hysterical. And she keeps up because right. prodigy. <laughs> and then she gets hysterical rather... Uh, Before he even gets right. to the end of the song, he overdoes it and passes and collapses onto the floor. And the doctor's like, get my bag. And then says, it's probably not serious. I'm like, oh, really? A grown man singing hysterically and then collapsing onto your floor? Probably not a big deal. You're right. You're a pro. And then Cooper's getting ready for bed. Uh, the giant visits him one more time. It's a weird scene because Cooper is asleep. Mm-hmm. Like, he starts and he's talking to Diane like, it's 11-something at night. I'm getting exhausted. And then he goes and he turns off the recorder and he turns off the light and he's sleeping. He's laying there with, like, his arm crossed over his eyes. And you see somebody in the room come from the far side, not the door side of the room, but the other side of the room. And it casts a shadow and sort of waves over his face. Mm -hmm. You don't see who it is or what it is. And then you see that it's the giant. So it's a a being that casts a shadow. 
David Lynch knows what shadows are. He's not doing this on accident, I gotta think. And then he, like, disappears and then reappears in a ball of light. And then he wakes him up. Like he, this is the giant that disappears and reappears. And then he wakes Cooper up. And Cooper knows it's not a dream and says, The man in the smiling bag came true. And the giant says, The things I tell you will not be wrong. He says, one other person saw the third man at the cabin that night, and that person is ready to talk. And he reminds Coop that he forgot something and shines a light under Coop's bed. It was before this, so I, I missed the scene. You missed... Um, Audrey is Audrey. praying. Mm-hmm. She is laying on the bed, and she basically is praying to special agent. Special mm-hmm. agent, special agent, if you can hear me. I know I left, I left you a note. You had to have gotten it. Of course, he had the note in his hand when he was shot and has forgotten it. This is the thing that he's forgotten. She says, I'm like, she admits that she's over her head. She knows that she's going to be put into dangerous situations if she continues to work with him Mm -hmm. as an FBI agent, I guess. But as a newcomer, like as a newbie, she could really use some help. She doesn't know what she's going to do, and she's like... But she goes, tomorrow I'm going to try and find out if Laura and Ronette ever worked up here. Oh, and the connection between right. Horn's department store and one Eye Jack's is that my dad owns both of them. So there you go. Um, I, I really like this scene. This is probably my favorite scene. Because she's so... I mean... She, you get to see her as a, as an 18-year-old girl. Right. As a kid who admits to being in it over their head. Mm-hmm. I think the story that you're getting from this scene is that here's a woman who is very beautiful, and she grew up with a certain amount of attention and an ability to get people what she, get people to do what she wanted mm-hmm. because of this. And now she realizes there's another side to this. Yes. Where that same kind of quality is going to put her in danger, mm-hmm. and she won't be able to control it all mm-hmm. the time. It's been one thing in the world of high school. It's going to be a complete other thing in, a in the brothel. adult world. Right. Yeah. So and she, not just the adult world, mm, but like the, the seedy triple adult world, X right. adult world. Like she went just right past right. just being grown to, yeah. And, and she's, you know, she's on the bed. She's wearing like a black negligee, but it's long. Mm-hmm. So she, she's covered for right. the most part. Um, and she's got her hands in like prayer position, right. and she is talking to her savior, special agent, who is unresponsive because he has forgotten her. But hopefully that's he hasn't forgotten her. He's sound asleep. Well, no, but he'd forgotten that he had the letter, yeah. the the note from her. Um, and then the episode ends with a very disturbing scene. Uh, Ronette Pulaski wakes up from the coma that she's been in since basically she was found right. on the bridge. Um, after a terrorizing flashback to the night of the murder itself, where we see Laura screaming, excuse me, screaming like a banshee in the train car, while the long haired Bob. Bob uh, plunges a knife into her. At, lo- at least that's what it looks like. And then once he's killed her, we hear his like demonic laughter. 
And so now we know that Bob from Cooper's Dream and Laura's mom's vision is the killer. But who is he and why did he kill Laura? And I feel like it's a cheat. Like, that's where I'm at with this right now. So it wasn't Leo. It was kind of Leo and it was kind of Jacques. Mm -hmm. But it's really this guy, Bob, who is a supernatural figure. I think that he might be the personification of the evil in the woods. I mean, for... It feels like a cheat. Like, it, it just feels it's, like a cheat. Well, I don't think it's a cheat because he's been warning you that this is not a mystery story so much as it is, like I said, a giallo, almost. It's like the murders themselves and the stylish just which the story is told is more important than the actual murders. Yeah, but... But now you're winding up with a supernatural creature who lives in the woods. Maybe... Maybe. But not just these woods, right? Because these woods are not where the other girl was murdered. So you're in so, a situation more like a, what was the film Fallen? Oh yeah, where a serial killer is actually in, you know, some sort of ancient evil that hops from person to person. I don't think it's gonna be that deep. I, I really don't. I don't know. It seems to be heading in that direction, because there's you know mystical crime solving puzzles and giants that appear and disappear. It's a very you know. So the clues are come from his dreams. So yeah, he's warned you ahead of time. This is not going to be a routine. But murder he mystery. hasn't really warned you until this episode that you're basically fucked. Like, um, well, you're in some sort of alternate world. Well, I've got some words. some trivia. Mm-hmm. So apparently, this episode was almost directed by. Your favorite, Mm -hmm. Steven Spielberg, almost directed this episode. Oh, lovely. (laughs) Um, This is ironic. I do not care for Steven Spielberg. The actor who plays the giant. Mm -hmm. Remember when I said it's not Lurch? It It totally is Lurch from from the Addams Family movies. movies, The movies, yeah. Oh, and Mr. Hom in five seasons of Star Trek TNG. Oh, Gersten isn't going to come back. Alicia Vitt. Mm-hmm. She was in this episode, and that's it, apparently. She was be- busy being a prodigy. Um, the ratings of the show, apparently, dropped massively after this episode. Why? Because America is me, and I is America. Um, they were mad that, that you didn't get the who our killer was. People were mad. That's not why I'm upset. I think you're upset because stylistically it dipped... Very deep into... We went into the David Lynch that makes but, me want my time back. Now, remember, this might have been the first time you saw that David Lynch, because the real eccentric David Lynch, The Lost Highway, and... Was Blue Velvet um, not... Blue Velvet was, actually. But was that, it before this or Blue after Blue Velvet this? was still more or less a film noir, a modern okay. film noir. It was not like... But it wasn't like... Lost Highway is... Lost one, Highway, where a character... Lost, I've only ever uh, seen Lost Highway and Mulholland Drive. Right. Falls. Drive? What? Mulholland uh, Drive. Drive. Mulholland Falls is another movie. A good one, but another movie. So those are the two that I've seen, where you get to the end and you're like, oh good, Well, nothing nothing is anything, and I don't know why. I just watched that for two hours. um, I appreciate both of those movies for what they were. They had their moments. Um, I appreciate the whole reading of Mulholland Drive that explains the film as a woman who's afraid of being outed about her homosexuality. Right. When you see the film that way, it totally makes sense. That's... Otherwise, I mean, it yeah. is a really... I feel like we're 
drops traveling down the the fan theory thing though. The Ferris Bueller isn't a real person. It's Alan Ruck's id. Mm-hmm. Um, and the uh, Drag Me to Hell is a bulimia story or a, mm. like a eating disorder story. And like, I mean, I guess you could watch it that way, but I don't feel like that's what David Lynch wanted you to do. I don't. I, he he doesn't really. Um... He's not telling a story in any way that sort of makes sense the way that we understand. I know, that's why I don't like it. And so, again, I can appreciate it because there are moments, for instance, in um, Lost Highway that are just amazing. And then the film doesn't hang together because he, does, he doesn't play fair. He, that's what, I don't, that's the film, what I don't like. Play as you're getting fair involved with, with Bill Pullman's character, he suddenly turns into a teenage boy. That's literally what happens in the middle of that film. That's a spoiler, but I feel like I'm doing a service yeah, by no. warning you that if you think that you're going to watch a film about Bill Pullman, no, he turns into Balthazar Getty midway through the film. And then it becomes a complete other story with elements of the first half of the movie. Yeah, he, I, that's and what in, it is. I right. don't feel like he plays fair with his audience. Right. And there are many ways that you cannot play fair. It's particularly problematic in a mystery because right. I am a person who... You have to give all of the... It's not fair to the audience to give them three out of four possibilities and it's always the fourth possibility. Oh, no, it wasn't those things because it was this fourth thing that you've never seen or heard about in this whole thing. Now, granted, we have seen and heard about Bob through Mm -hmm. this thing, but we don't know what it is. Although if he continues along the path where he gives us some of this backstory. Like, today we got Nadine and Ed's backstory right. in a in an exposition-heavy but perfectly fine little colonel, and because Albert was there, like, that scene was actually really good, mm-hmm. but it was four minutes, and I cleared a bunch of stuff up, and I'm like, okay, I totally get it. Perfect. Um, I don't know why she has Hulk strength, but that's, <laughs> that's a separate issue. Um, why is Sarah Palmer... Psychic. Mm-hmm. What's her deal? Half the people in this town are psychic. Cool. They're, explain it. They're having... Well, see, I can explain it, but I don't think it's necessarily what... I can come up with an explanation. It's I not his explanation the universe's rules right. defined and then stuck to. That's what I want. Mm-hmm. Build a universe. Give it any rules that you want. I don't care and what I don't they think are. It's the, I don't think it's the, the whole supernatural thing that's bothering you. It's because not. I it can, would be. I'm fine with supernatural work, stuff. It would work, for instance. Um, I watch the X Files. I'm totally fine no, with the, it. No, uh, the what's the film that comes to mind right now when you said playing fair? The Sixth Sense. Yes. Completely oh, yeah. straight fair. down the line plays absolutely fair. Drops clues on you all the yeah. time. Hey guys, giant um, spoiler for a really old movie. Bruce Willis is dead the whole time. Yeah. Well, since the beginning. He's killed by Donnie Wahlberg at the beginning. Yes, that is Donnie Wahlberg. He does not look like himself at all. Um, and also... Um, and if you watch right. it and you know that, the movie still makes sense. And the Sixth Same Sense, with, yeah, well, The Ring is another one. Yes. Where despite the fact that you have all these supernatural elements, it's still playing very straight with you. Mm-hmm. People are people. People react. They have reactions mm-hmm. that people would have in the real world. The murderer in that story, and it lays out like a mystery. Yeah. The murderer in that story is unusual, but at the same time, there's still a logic that it adheres to. Right. There is an internal universal structure. 
give the me problem, the rules right. and then obey those rules. The problem with if you give me rules, anything can happen I, for no particular reason. I don't I don't enjoy that. <laughs> that yes. I'm not on board for that because mm-hmm. then you can do anything and right. what's the point? And the episode becomes kind of a fever dream. You're not there's sure what's no real or what's re- there's not no, real. Right? Yeah. I, if there's no rules in a mm-hmm. universe, there's no stakes to the story, right. and you could literally do anything, yeah. and that's not interesting to me. Well, the characters don't sacrifice and anything. I, and I will... But if you tell me you can do anything, like, I wanted... Um, what am I thinking of? Inception. Mm-hmm. To be way more visually interesting than it was. I mean, it was visually interesting, but he could have done anything, and he did some stuff. Mm-hmm. He went to about a four when he could have gone to well, a Well, Ellen Page's character is obviously the most brilliant right. in the film, but, but sh- the, they're still doing very to do, pedestrian things. Yes, exactly. You could do anything. And I'm fine with you being able to do anything mm-hmm. because the... Flexibility of the world structure structure doesn't change right. the dream structure and all that other stuff. Anyways, yeah, no, I just I need you to have roles, and then I need you to follow those roles, and then if you want to change the roles, that's fine, but that needs to be explicit, right? Because yeah, otherwise there's no stakes. I can't follow along. I can't care about any of these people because they might be a werewolf now. Right. Okay. Uh, are you a zombie? Did you die? For no reason. Are you a ghost? Oh, all of these things. Why? Because I can, because there are no rules, and I, that's not interesting to me. Give me structure. <laughs> I want a structure. So, that's where I'm at. I, Bob's our killer, apparently, I, which we'll find out in season I enjoyed seven. it. I enjoyed it because there was enough stuff that appealed to me mm-hmm. as... Um, as a film, former film student, yeah. as a person who admi- this is going to sound very pretentious, so Ooh, I'm warning you time, who enjoys cinema. Oh, <laughs> fuck you! I enjoy cinema too. No, but as a person who has a history or a uh, memory of this that goes back to yeah, you movies, you had links. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I just. But this was it was enjoyable for me to see some of the stuff that they pulled. Um, some of these scenes were really good. Mm-hmm. Some of these scenes were my favorite in the show. Right. Overall, this was my least favorite episode. So, do you show. feel that he's um, like Jim Carrey? The more he's Maybe. under control, or yes. somebody's putting a hand to it, the more he, you can get out of David Lynch. Rather direct than, him, right. or yeah, rein him in. Right. Give him a framework to play in. If you don't give him a framework, then he's gonna paint all over the place, and it's gonna be muddy, and it's not gonna make sense. Right. And. Ultimately, he's going to do too much and detract from the the good things that were done. I think I can understand why he was losing his audience at this point because it is kind of well the the tone shift in this episode uh-huh. was extreme. Right. It just was, but also the shift in the story is pretty extreme because we're what a week eight days in. Right. After one murder, which was horrific in this town, and how many people are dead? Let's count. Jacques dead. Leo, not dead, but in a coma. Renette's still in a coma. Uh, Josie, Catherine, missing. Catherine, presumed dead. Josie, presumed alive. So in this episode, we have effectively three people in a coma in the same hospital. Renette was. Uh She wakes up at the end. Leo is. Jacoby's awake. So who's the other one that you were thinking of? 
Oh yeah, Nadine is in the coma. That's right. She's the other one. It's just yeah. yeah. <laughs> that's that's it, a that's a lot of coma. It seems kind of like and especially because coma is yeah. pretty hack. It might not that's have been as I mean, hack in 1990, but I'm pretty sure it, it kind of was. It seems to be though. almost lazy writing to every character that we don't have um, room for in the script gets put into a coma. Right. Yeah. Because and then we can keep them everybody in the hospital because right. they're visiting somebody. Oh, also, one-armed Mike, his name's not Mike, the one-armed man, mm, right. the one-armed shoe salesman, was in this episode. He came to the um, the police station to sell Truman some shoes. Nothing came of that. No, nothing at all. He just came in looking very happy and not at all like I remember him looking last season. I don't know. I assume it was the same actor, but... He just looked very different to me. And he was like, oh, I don't have an appointment. Truman just said to come by when it was convenient, and it hasn't been convenient until today. And I'm here to sell him shoes. And then he spins around in the foyer of the foyer, as the major says, of the um, police station. And Lucy just looks at him quizzically. And then that's the last time we see him. Right. And that was about... 15 minutes into the episode. Like, it wasn't very far in. They could have revisited that. I don't know why that was happening. But, yeah, so... I don't know how I'm going to hold it together for these next few episodes, but I'm going to do it. You're going to do it. We're going to see it through. We're going to find out... David Lynch isn't going to direct all of them, so that's... Yes, Promising to me. Maybe Mark Frost will straighten up. I don't know. It's just... I feel like he is going to do some cheating, and I'm going to be left bereft at the end of this thing. All right, so what do you have to recommend this week to our listeners? Well, I saw a film which I've actually wanted to see for a little while now. Um, I saw it too. I know. We saw it together. We invited someone who may be listening who did not join us. Rude. Anyhow, The Shape of Water is Guillermo Toro's film that he just, uh, his latest one. And uh, I really... He won the Golden Globe for Best Director last night. He won the Golden Globe for Best Director. Um, A little discomfited by Natalie Portman's jab, but... Well, I think it was a fair jab. It was a fair jab, but I feel bad for him. (laughs) If you don't know, before... As they were about to read the the Best Director nominees, Natalie Portman piped up, or here are the all-male mm-hmm. nominees for Best Director. Because, yeah, why are there no female... Whatever, it's fine. I mean, it's no, not... I, I was surprised that Greta Gerwig, the director of Lady Bird... Lady Bird. ...was not nominated. Was not nominated. Which is strange because it seems... Well, I was a little miffed that Jordan wasn't nominated mm. for Get Out. Right. Uh, which was it was put in a weird category, but it's still. It was put in um, comedy, comedy or musical to get it a nomination because mm. they do five drama and five comedy or musical. But then the other thing that pissed me off was we're waiting for the big prize. Mm-hmm. Like drama is automatically better than whatever they've deemed right. for comedy and musical. Like that pissed me off too. But yeah, no, Get Out should have been up for best. Well, it should have been. But um, and he should have been up for director. But Guillermo del Toro's film. Um, Maybe they should have a best first director, best first time first director. director, first time director. I think it would be really hard to qualify that. The the lines are getting blurred between film and television and things like that. So first time well, already, yeah. Theatrical so director could be a person who's had a career in television. Oh, when um, Ava DuVernay's 
13 won an Academy Award last year. Mm-hmm. I was like, um, it's only been released on Netflix. Right. It's a Netflix thing. That's television. Yeah. That's not... I mean, they must have put it out in a theater somewhere because that's how you get qualified yeah. for the Academy Awards. But And the Golden Globes is both. Mm-hmm. But to me, the Academy Awards still is like, it's a, that's a big screen thing. Yeah, it should have been. But to go back to the film, mm-hmm. um, I really liked it. It's not going to be for everybody. It's a fable. It Also, it's um, Sally Hawkins. And you she plays... had a problem with her before. Uh, I, I you like her, but you don't like some of the movies. That some of the parts in. that she plays just are irritating. She was very good in Godzilla. Well, you think everyone was good in Godzilla, well, especially Godzilla. Godzilla. But um, in this film, she plays uh, a woman who's mute, who apparently had her vocal cords severed when she was young. Yeah, that's the implication. She uh, works cleaning up a government lab with somewhere her, on the east coast baltimore baltimore with her best friend octavia spencer octavia spencer who plays sassy black lady and but she actually i think she was great she was but they could have given her more to do because she's octavia fucking spencer and she can right. do more well she can do more but um and they're working in a government lab where they're this story seems to very seriously be a riff on creature from the black lagoon i know that it was inspired by it but down to the details about being dragged up the Amazon and all yeah. come directly from the other film. The creature is beautiful. The creature is Doug Jones. Yay! He's a mostly practical effect. I've met him. He's a very nice guy. He seems like maybe the really nicest. Really tall and very thin. Because mm-hmm. they got to put him inside right. of things, so. And he's very funny because when you meet him, he's just almost hyper happy. About everything. Well, and now he's um, in Discovery. Oh, okay. I didn't know he he's was in Star features. Trek Discovery. Um, and he has makeup on. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he's an alien. Right. But he's more... There's you can more see more of his face, and right. he is—he uh, has talking part. And I, I, the, my connection to the film started a couple of years ago when I saw him uh, do a, a special presentation to Julia Adams. Um, there was a theatrical showing of science fiction movies at a theater in Arinda, Moraga, I think. And I went with a friend, and we got to see uh, This Island Earth, and we got to see them. And the, the main feature of the night was watching Creature from the Black Lagoon, and Julia Adams is in the audience. She was brought out in a wheelchair. She's a lovely, lovely woman. I don't know who that is. Who is that? Uh, she was the uh, lead, female lead in oh, Creature from the Black creature. Lagoon. Okay. She does the infamous water ballet with the creature. Right. And she was very funny, very, very sharp. She was puzzled why, you know, I've done all these movies in my career with big stars and they remember me and the creature. (laughs) Um, And she talked a little bit about the film. And Doug Jones got to interview her. So he thought, at that point in his career, he said that he'd played Abe Sapien in the Hellboy movies. Or he plays a water creature. Yes. And that was inspired by the creature from the Black Lagoon. So... They had this whole conversation saying, I'm playing a part. I would love to do The Creature from the Black Lagoon, but Guillermo can't get the rights to it. Right. But so it's one of his favorite movies. And of course, a couple of years later, this film comes out. Yep. And it's essentially the same story, only from what Guillermo del Toro explained about watching The Creature from the Black Lagoon as a kid. He thought, for some reason, with kid logic, that this woman was going to fall in love with the creature. Because right. the creature was so obviously devoted to her in the movie. Right. 
As a matter of fact, there's a scene in the seven-year itch where Marilyn Monroe wonders why. Why they don't get together. Why they don't get together. And she feels pity for the creature. That's a, a scene in that film. Mm-hmm. So that feels d- very much like Marilyn Monroe. Like, right. I bet Marilyn Monroe oh, I'm that sure herself. She did. But it was very, the, the film itself is a fairy tale for adults. Yes. I should point that out. There's, there is sex. Yes. And there is extreme violence. Extreme violence. Um, there's a, And then there's beautiful, just water scenes. And, like, it's so weird because I forgot that it was Guillermo del Toro mm-hmm. until extreme violence. Right. Um, and face mutilation. Man... Guillermo really likes to put holes in cheeks. And and that's not to give something away. It's just to warn you that this is an adult fairy tale, so there are images... Is it here. R-rated? It's got to be R-rated. Yes, it is. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I remember going with Amity and a couple of friends to see Pan's Labyrinth, and there was mm. somebody who brought their kid to the theater. Nope. Because they thought fairies... There's fairies in this movie, Mm-mm. and of course, uh, midway through the movie, they left. Yep. Because nope. it was so incredibly violent. So Very always violent. be prepared going into one of his films with the fact that he, um, there's something in Latin culture, I forget the term for it, uh, they used to use it in application to Goya's paintings with the preoccupation with ugliness. Oh, yeah. And there's a lot of that in Latin culture, whether it's all in, in, in Spanish films or also in uh, films from Mexico or Latin American countries. Mm-hmm. They don't shy away from violence and gore the same way that you typically would hear. Right. And so there's some very intense, in-your-face, gory scenes. Yeah. Um, but there's also a lot of, for people who would be squeamish, and it's presented very tastefully, This there's a physical consummation to this relationship with oh, yeah. the creature. Oh, yeah. 100%. And, but uh-huh. it's done in a really non-male-gazy way. Right. Like, she is a fully fleshed out mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. word choice. We don't know. And you see all of um, her, by the way. So you do. You know. She Yes. I she is <laughs> nude multiple times in this movie. But from the jump, she is a sexual being. Right. She's Period. not oh, a virgin She's wasting not away. virginal. She's um, not, a, you know, she doesn't have a significant other, uh-huh. currently at least. Um, she does have a best friend who is a man right. who is not going to ever be into her. <laughs> um, and that's, again, what she pointed out, the fact that the film set is really about the outcasts. It's the outcasts. So this it's, is during the Cold War. Right. There's no time given. It's the past. And right. he's driving some real sweet 50s-style Cadillac. Mm-hmm. So that's where we could put the time. But there isn't a year given because right at the beginning the opening um voiceover puts us firmly in fable land this isn't our world right the most you can tell what you can tell as term in in terms of when is that there's a movie theater that she lives above that's playing the story of ruth okay which was 1960 okay so that's probably that's the about closest you can where get you're looking, yeah um, yeah, the the car style puts you mm-hmm. 50s, 60s. Right. The hairstyles, uh, Michael Shannon, who's a really horrible villain in this Ooh, film. He is, he's a little bit one note, too. Mm-hmm. He and Octavia Spencer, but the trick, the, the problem for that, mm-hmm. 
is that both of them are so good right. and have been so good. So when they aren't given that, I mean, his role is meaty, mm-hmm. literally, and um, and she's necessary and has some good stuff, especially like um, the scene at her house right. and her, as her really home very is good. very good uh, th- for both of them. Um, they could do more layered things. Mm-hmm. It's a fable. They don't need to be layered. That's exactly. it's trophy. Yeah, Mike Lashan, though, his performance, I think what struck me about it is that he is the personification of that whole period. Yes. He's the personification the of the problem with the America, man who can take advantage of women whenever he wants to. Ugh. He's the man who is not only racially insensitive, he's an outright bigot. And yeah. Say that to people's faces. He, um, there's a, he's just sort of like, um, a, he's everything that was wrong with hey, that kind of. He's not, not, not just then. He's an evil white man. Right. And that's, a cishet white mm, man and everything that is wrong with that. Right. Like, but that could be wrong with that. At the same that, time, and say. this is. Because it isn't necessarily right. bad to be any no, of those there, things. There is the another character who I won't go into what his secret is, who winds up being more sympathetic than you expect him to be, given what he is. Um, and you know who I'm talking about. I don't. He's a, the, the doctor who helps him. Oh yes, yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And he has all those same qualities. Yes. He's he's a patriot. He's. A, but he, at the same he time... He also has compassion. Right. Has com- and believes in science. Right. So, but at the, that there's a, there's a whole feel to there that all these people are people who are on the margins of that society at that time. And they all kind of band together to do something. And that's probably why they're not judging each other. Right. Because they all know there's something different. About that, yes. And there's a scene yeah. where uh, Sally Hawkins, speaking in sign language, explains to her best friend was a gay man. Yeah. Um, Richard Drakens doing some excellent work. And they give yeah. him he gets sort of it, right. a layered thing to do, which is kind of why it feels like the Michael Shannon and Octavia Spencer mm-hmm. pieces could be more because the Richard Jenkins character is more. But He's he, got three or four things going on and they each have one big thing going His on. character, though, his performance, he's like a force of nature. He's just destructive. I Michael mean, Shannon? Michael Shannon. Okay, he I thought is, you were talking about Richard Jenkins. Oh, no, Richard Jenkins is, is really good in this movie, and you really feel. There's one particular scene in the diner yes. where you just, it, yeah. he, he's amazing. And also the kind of, um, yeah, no, just go see the movie. Go see the movie. <laughs> it's good. But again, it's, give yeah. me that warning. It's It is an R-rated movie, <clears throat> and they're not... Messing around. He's not messing around. Remember that he's trying to do Beauty and the Beast for adults. Yeah, there you go. Which is why... But it's not even Beauty and the Beast because that's a little bit Stockholm Syndrome, right? Like, well, she Beauty is the Beast forced is. to fall in love in with this him. One, in this one... It's, everything is her choice. Everything is her choice. And she has this experience where this creature... And this is the... Mm-hmm the the scene that they're pulling for awards for mm-hmm. Sally. Um, she's signing about he doesn't know that I'm 
defective. Yeah. I mean, that's not what she says. She says, he doesn't know that I'm missing something. He sees me as a full being mm -hmm. and doesn't know that I'm, quote, lacking something. Yeah. Because, and many deaf people will, um, mm -hmm. will say this, they don't see deafness as a disability. She's not deaf. Mm -hmm. She's just mute. She can't speak. Um, but that doesn't make her less than. Right. I mean, it does in the eyes of society because society is Michael Shannon and is a real big dick. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it, there was great bits like that. There's a lot of the fact that, I mean, there's a lot of uh, neat touches. The fact that the film being shown is the story of Ruth. And mm -hmm. anybody who knows the story of Ruth knows the famous quotation about giving up everything and devoting yourself to that one person that you love no matter what. Um, there's a moment where the creature is tied up and being tortured. And it's identical to a scene in The Silent Hunchback of Notre Dame. Right. There's a lot of great little things he in the movie. He does the homages, which he yeah. does. I think he sprinkles out pretty liberally through most of his films. Right. But um, this one really... And it's beautiful to look at. Yeah, I got is. the color story was more clear to me, I'm sure, mm -hmm. than to you with your yes, color blindness. Unfortunately. Um, but it's all blues and greens. Mm -hmm. It's like we're underwater and it's that land and water... So you're kind of looking at the way the creature sees the world. Everything's in these shades. And, and the, like I said, the mm -hmm. creature design is beautiful. Right. And you get to see it, which mm -hmm. is nice. Um, it's not hidden for the whole movie. Yeah, there's a moment at the end that I won't give away, but he looks so regal when you see it. Oh, yeah. When you get the sense that this is a very powerful animal, and even more than that, it's like yes. it's not an animal at all. But yeah. I won't give that away either. It's no. actually... It's a really... It's very good. But again, caveat, you will be seeing things that yep. go into it Boobies. knowing what you're going to be seeing. You will see a naked woman. Mm -hmm. You will see a naked woman love a fish monster. <laughs> right. A lady and a fish man. They're going to totally do it. And you then, don't see the sex scene between the animals. Again, it's very But it is done. explicit that that is happening. Mm -hmm. And she... Signs how it happens because <laughs> Which you can't is see genitalia scene. on the thing. The the mm. fish man does not have right visible. And from what I understand, there was never any discussion of that. It's like no, we're going to be great. That's right. good. Yeah, it's no, like, nobody needs that. No, um, no, it's it's very good. I am going to recommend something extremely different than mm. that, and that is the well. If you don't watch Blackish, you should probably do that. I was hesitant to watch the show because the title is sketchy. Um, I understand now, and I've heard many um, interviews with Kenya Barris, the, the uh, creator of the show, and the show is phenomenal. Mm -hmm. Super funny. You're going to get your learn on. You're going to see things from a point of view that may not make you comfortable if you are... Uh, melaninly challenged as I am I'm a white person and so some of that stuff is like oof that hurts but also yep it is right it is true um, I guess we learned about Juneteenth at an, in an earlier episode this season um, but so if you're not watching Blackish watch Blackish but I would recommend also watching Grown-ish which is a spinoff it's not on ABC it's on what used to be ABC Family and is now called Freeform. And I think they're showing two episodes. They showed two episodes the day that it premiered. So I don't know if they're going to do two episodes a day. It's a sitcom length, so half an hour. And it is a spinoff of the youngest daughter, or the oldest daughter going to college. 
it's a fake Southern California college stand-in for USC or UCLA, um, but it's got a fake <laughs> college name. And uh, it stars Yara Shahidi, uh, who is lovely and talented and quite smart. Um, she is young, too. She's about the age of her character. I think she's 20, or no, she's 17. So she is the age mm. of her character, uh, which is odd on TV these days. This is a different world to Blackish's Cosby show. Mm -hmm. That's a good parallel. Um, but they are already doing some very smart, very honest things in the show. Um, so the first episode, <laughs> they're in a night class. It's her and a bunch of people who are taking adult school because this class is at midnight. Um, taught by Dion Cole is very funny and blackish and is the same character and is weirdly a professor of dronology, basically, in the middle of the night. Um, and you find out it's her and six, wait, the twins. The three dudes and the one woman. Mm -hmm. So that is, yeah, six other people. So there's a main cast of her seven friends. How did we end up in this class? And you see how each of them missed registration. Right. And then, and so then this is going to be her core group of friends. And then her roommate will also be one. Um, so that's the first episode. And you see her make a terrible decision that makes her look like a terrible person. And she's like, hey, but it's cool because we all made bad decisions, right? And they were like, yours is pretty much the worst. <laughs> um, and she is like, oh, yeah, because I was caring more about what other people right. think about me because I've never been on my own. I've been big fish in small pond. And now I am regular fish in giant pond. And I don't know how to navigate that. Yeah. Um, and then the second episode, they deal with the fallout from her previous decision in one episode. So it's not an ongoing thing. Um, and they bring up drug use in a very smart um, and honest right. way. Right. One of her friends is smoking weed all the time, and she's like, it's not my thing. And she does, she is drinking at these parties, and she's, you know, hanging out. And she's, her, her time management is not good, because when you get to college, and you get to decide what you do all of the time, your time management is not good. Um, and so she starts taking Addy, Adderall. And she takes it a couple of times, and the first time it does not go well, and the second time it does go well, and she's like, okay, but that's not what I'm going to rely on. I'm going to turn it around, I'm going to be me, but then as soon as the boy that she likes texts her in the middle of the night with yeah. a you up, you want to hang out, she says yes and takes another pill, and that's how the episode ends. Because you don't just stop doing a thing. You don't just suddenly make good decisions when you're 17, 18 years old. Um, the whole cast is really good. They've done a weird thing with one of the characters that I don't understand. Yeah, I don't know where that's coming from. In the first episode, this woman is very clearly a lesbian. The reason that she's in this night class 
is that she was making out with a woman and she spends a lot of that first episode talking about how she doesn't know how she's going to come out. And then in the second episode, she's trying to sleep with some it? celebrity I've never heard Some of. Some celebrity that, yeah, he's never heard that of. I'm too old to know. That is a dude. And she talks about, like, none of the guys at this party make me even want to open a Plan B package. And I'm like, you were in the ladies last episode? <laughs> and now Well, that's... not just into ladies, because, I mean, it's not like bisexuality is an uncommon. Isn't a thing, right. But I think in the first episode... There was the strong motivation was I'm not going to find a nice Jewish boy like my family wants me to do. Right. Yeah. And so it seemed like a really weird turn. Yeah. So I don't know what's going on with that one character, but I'm sure that they'll dial it in. Mm-hmm. Um, but the show is dealing with some very interesting things. It was almost shocking for me because I grew up with the Cosby Show, right? I mean, even before that, because mm-hmm. I'm old. Mm-hmm. You watch shows like um, the way that uh, Facts of Life, for instance, treated college. You know, there was a huge controversy whether any of the girls would ever lose their virginity. You know, and, um, and they had to go one by one. All the actresses refused to do that because they thought about the images that that would right. give. Um, and then when you had a show like A Different World, there was very little discussion about drug use. No. There was, And um, typically in a sitcom, which mm-hmm. this very much is, this is a half an hour comedy show. Shit gets wrapped up at the end of the episode. Right. And I was very grateful when they ended that episode and she took another one of those pills. Right. That issue is not done for her. That issue won't be done for it that It wasn't wrapped one, up neatly girl. in saying drugs are bad. And, mm-hmm. and again, that may be because I was part of the say no to drugs generation. Um, but at the same time, it's sort of denying the fact that a bunch of people who are not drug fiends are taking. No, that's the thing. For any number it's, of reasons. Yes. And her reason is that she's a perfectionist and she needs to get her grades. But the other thing she... is, a cute boy called, she's exhausted, but she wants to talk to him. Right. She wants to hang out with him. And that's a reasonable thing. Right. That's, that's a perfectly fine motivation for a 17 or 18-year-old girl right, exactly. to do this. It, she's not making, you know, it's not the Jesse Spano, I'm so excited, I'm right. so excited, I'm so scared moment. Well, also, there was, a to me, um, the fact that none of the other characters are demonized for their drug use either. Mm-mm. Because the one friend that she, the, the girl, again, um, whose name escapes me, she is uh, makes a comment about, you know, oh, this is your first... Baby's first Addy spiral. Right. Yeah. And so it's there's no judgment on it. And I nope. think that instead you're going to bring your judgment with you. Right. But it was very well, and the mm-hmm. one of the one of the one of the guys is smoking mm-hmm. weed all of the time. Right. And he's offering her some and she's like, Weed at eleven is not gonna make my life better. Right. And he's like, Well, you gotta figure something out because you know, and he when when she meets up with him later, he's the one telling her, Have ideas when we meet for our project later. Right. And when he gets there, smoking weed he has sketches and drawings and, you know, well, yeah. he's prepared. It's not like, oh, weed makes him not be able to do anything. Right. Like, that's not... It, it was very interesting because I feel it is probably much more realistic to college life than a program like A Different World was back then. Mm. When that's not the fault of those filmmakers, it's that that's what they were allowed to do. Yeah. No, I that's mean, true. The whole uh, bit Which was, I think is why the show uh, isn't on ABC. Right. 
but is on the ABC spinoff. Now, this is also a channel that shows the 700 Club. Right. So... Which is going to be very interesting. But, and then it right. also has things like Pretty Little Liars and the mm-hmm. Fosters. And, right. like, there's a lot of teen drama shows on this channel. Mm. Um, but so far, Grownish is really good. And um, Yara is uh, fantastic. Yeah, no, it was really... It, it, she's carrying the show really well. She, um, and she does. She makes her sympathetic. Uh, the the conceit of the program also is that she's talking to you directly all the time. Yes, like, sort of like, like you are sitting with mm-hmm. her, and she's like, and she will say, and there, t- yeah, you know what's wrong with me, so don't judge me. D- like there are times when she's making a bad decision where she just sort of stops and gives you a look, like, okay, I know, I'm going in knowing that. Which I think they used to have Dre do more in Blackish, right. but he doesn't do that as much. But I think it's a similar right. Um, conceit. But she plays to the audience really well. Yes. And I think that... She's um, utterly charming. She's... There's probably big things ahead of her. I think so. Put okay. her in the second Black Panther movie. I'm going to need a second Black Panther movie also. You haven't had a first Black Panther movie. That's fine. But they need to start making the second one already because I don't want to wait. All right. So I think that's everything. Right. Go see The Shape of Water and mm-hmm. watch Grownish on Freeform. Please rate, review, and subscribe to us. Tell a friend if you like the show. Mm-hmm. We'd like more people to hear it, so tell your friends about it. Uh, we're going to watch more Twin Peaks. We're going to watch at least six more episodes and the movie. Do you think we should watch two episodes at a time? I think that might be if you want to get through it. I feel like I do, because I feel like I'm going to start getting less and less Involved just because it's more not more involved, mm, pleasant mm-hmm. <laughs> as we go. If he if we spiral into a full Lynch, Lynch, Lynchian situation, um, so yeah, we're going to be watching two episodes next week um, and doing one episode uh, of the show so that we can get to the solution, the reveal, the, mystery, the right. solution. Assuming that there is a solution, mm-hmm. we'll see. You can email us at latecomers pod at gmail.com we are on twitter at latecomers pod yep and i'm uh you can go to uh, my website uh amityarmstrong.com or find me on twitter at amity armstrong hey did you get a surprise twitter not yet Damn. soon i'm sure soon he says so like mid 2019 mm-hmm. nice Thanks to the Freak Fandango Orchestra for our theme song. It's called Late As Usual. Um, I don't say that all the time, so I will say it today. And thank you guys for listening. Uh, We'll be back next week. And remember, say it with me. Better Better late late than than never. never. Yeah. 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 Ye